Good morning, church. Before I get started with my sermon, can everyone hear me? Yes? Before I get started with my sermon, I want to tell you that I had a dental procedure done that has messed with my tongue. I won't get into it, but basically, if at some point this morning during the sermon you hear me talking funny, that's why. Don't be distracted by it. Don't pay attention to it. And also pray for me, that it'll get better. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about numbers. Let's start with the smallest number, 100. 100 is roughly how many people come into this room for corporate worship every Sunday. Not quite 100 this morning, but that's about the average, 100 people. 250. That's about how many people we can pack into this room, balconies and all, if we jam everybody in really tight, and maybe, Lord willing, if he blesses our ministry, more evangelism and conversions, more discipleship, maybe that will one day be the case, 250. Making a pretty big jump now, 101,821. That is how many human bodies you can pack into the football stadium of the University of Alabama. I've never been I don't know if it's ever been fully packed. That's just what Google tells me. 101,000. Another big jump. 63 million. 63 million. That is how many babies have been killed by abortion in the United States of America since January 22nd, 1973. When the Supreme Court of the United States passed down the infamous Roe v. Wade decision, 63 million. This is a number that's difficult for us to really wrap our arms around. I mean, we can conceptualize it 63,000,000. We can do math with numbers this big, but to really understand a number this big, tangibly is difficult for us because we just don't deal with quantities this large in our everyday lives. You go buy, you know, a pack of hot dogs, there's eight. Or a pack of hot dog buns, there's ten, right? Or maybe you buy staples or a jumbo box of rubber bands, there's a few thousand. But rarely in life do you encounter even a million of something in one place at one time. I'm thinking maybe the beach, but then there's so much sand you don't even stop to think about how many grains of sand there are. 63 million. To put it in perspective, 2,455 servicemen died in the armed conflicts of Iraq and Afghanistan. Up from there, 58,000 casualties were recorded in our Vietnam War. Up from there, 1 million, excuse me, 116,516 deaths were recorded from the United States in World War I. Up from there, 418,000 American soldiers died in World War II. Up from there, 620,000 men died in the American Civil War, roughly 2% of the U.S. population at the time. If you add up the top 10 major American armed conflicts, the total casualty count is 1,300,000, give or take. If you go on and consider some of the world's most horrendous atrocities, like the killing fields of Cambodia, you'll find numbers begin to elevate from there. 3 million lives lost. Up from there, we consider the Holocaust, 6 million Jewish lives lost. We go up from there, we consider the reign of terror under Joseph Stalin in Soviet Russia, an estimated 20 million lives lost. Up from there, we consider the Cultural Revolution in Mao's China, and we find ourselves at 30 million lives lost in China. If you add all of these numbers up, all of the American lives lost in every major armed conflict in American history, along with the four major genocides in world history, 
you will still be three million deaths short of the 63 million babies murdered by abortion in America since 1973. I want us to wrap our minds around this. I want us to see what has happened in our midst. Picture the Bryant-Denny Stadium, right? The University of Alabama, packed to mass capacity. 101,000 human bodies in there. Now imagine that all of those people in that stadium are not adults or teenagers or adolescents or even children but babies. And I don't want you to just think about some baby in general, okay? I want you to think about baby Mitch or baby Elowen or your little girl, little boy, when she was... I want you to think about a real baby, not some picture of a baby, not a platonic ideal of a baby. I want you to think about a real human baby that you know. A hundred thousand of them in that stadium, dead, murdered. Now to get to 63 million of them, you would have to fill that stadium 630 times over. Fill it up once. Kill them all. Fill it up again. Kill them all. Fill it up a third time. Kill them all. That's three. Again and again and again. Fill it up a hundred times. Two hundred times. Three hundred times. Four hundred times. Five hundred times. Fill it up six hundred times. Kill them all. You still have to fill it up thirty more times with a hundred thousand babies. And kill them all before you get to 63 million lives lost. This is an ocean of injustice. Now, if the secular materialists are right and we're all just conglomerations of dust floating around on another bigger speck of dust in the black abyss of space, created by nothing, governed by nothing, loved by no one. Well, then it really does not matter. Do you understand that? That is the implication of that worldview. 63 million dead humans, 63 million dead babies, 63 million dead bacteria... 63 million bacteria die in your lower intestines every hour. 63 million dead blades of grass when you mow your lawn. It doesn't matter. It's all just carbon-based life form. It's all the same thing created by the blind forces of time and chance acting through random selection over the course of billions of years. It doesn't matter. This is... Nature, red in tooth and claw, the strong prey on the weak, the earth spins on its axis. This is just life in the black abyss of a lonely, dead, cold universe. But, on the other hand, if, if the materialists are wrong, then this is the greatest injustice that the world has ever known. And I'm only speaking of the American numbers. We haven't even taken into account what's been happening globally. The Bible begins with a glorious self-revelation from God. God speaks. He communicates himself to us. He says, I'm here and I've made you and I love you and I know you. And then immediately after God tells us about who He is, He goes on to tell us about who we are. And what God tells us at the very beginning of our story is that we are not mere conglomerations of dust. We are, as Genesis 1.27 tells us, created in His own image. 
in the image of God He created us. We are not an accident of this universe. We are a very intentional creation of the God of this universe. As Psalm 139 says, For you, speaking of the Lord, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And that's such an apt metaphor. If you've ever done any kind of craft work, if you've ever sewed, if you've ever done any kind of knitting, you know that that's a very intentional, thoughtful process. And then the psalmist goes on to praise God. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, not accidentally made, not casually made, not I, had, I, I was making a bunch of stuff over here and I had some leftover material and so might as well just make some humans while I'm at it. I once got a tattoo done, a very impromptu ta- tattoo session from a guy who was not at all qualified to be putting permanent images on my body. He had uh, 30 minutes before his next appointment and he had a little bit of extra ink and he said, well, you want anything else while I'm here? That's not what God did with us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, intentionally made. And then he says this. He says, my soul knows it well. We all know this. Even if we're suppressing this truth and unrighteousness, our souls know it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Friends, human beings are loved by God. We are valued by God. We are handcrafted by God. We are given purpose and meaning and dignity and worth by God. We have inherent value because we are image bearers of God. Therefore, all Christians must say with a psalmist, Your hands, O Lord, have made us. And fashioned us. We must say with Job, You clothed us with skin and flesh and knit us together with bones and sinews. We must deny the prevailing secular myth that says that humans are merely the result of time and chance acting on matter through random selection. And we must declare Isaiah 44 that we are formed in the womb by God himself. That's not just Christians. That's all humans. It's not just men. It's men and women. It's not just the wealthy. It's the wealthy and the poor. It's not just in the United States. It's every human being throughout the world that has ever lived ever. It's not just people who have perfectly healthy bodies. It's even those who are born with Down syndrome, autism, and other kinds of disabilities. Now, What this means for us, as we learned last week and a couple of weeks before that, is that God values human life and therefore He hates human death. It's not the normal course of affairs. It may be normal, actually, but it's not natural. What we saw in the raising of Lazarus from the grave is that human death angers and agonizes the heart of God. Now, as true as that is, We have to go further. We have to say more than that. We cannot say that in just some general way, God is opposed to death, as if all death in this fallen world is morally equivalent in God's mind. We must recognize that the heart of God responds differently to different kinds of death. An old man who just dies in his sleep. He's 97. He's had a long, fulfilled life, and it's his time. He responds differently to that than he does to a child who's been killed in a school shooting. There is a difference in the moral evaluation in the mind of God of death between a woman who dies in a car accident and a a woman who's murdered by her jealous lover. These two things are not equivalent in the mind of God. Why? Because injustice factors into how God perceives death. Psalm 89, verse 14 says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O Lord. What this means is that 
when you think about God, you think about Him sitting there as God, reigning as the Lord of the universe, a foundational aspect of His nature and character is that He is righteous and just. Therefore, we must conclude that God's anger and agony towards death is intensified when death is the result of injustice and unrighteousness. Now, we must also acknowledge that sometimes justice demands the taking of human life, right? Like when Romans 13 says that the purpose of the state is to bring the power of the sword down on the heads of evildoers. We recognize that. We think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler and put that unrighteousness to death, and we celebrate that as a morally good attempt to take human life. Most killing, however, that happens between human beings, the vast majority of the killing that happens between human beings is unjust. And the Bible says that God, and therefore we, should make a moral distinction between the just shedding of evil blood, listen to the language I'm using, the just shedding of evil blood and the wicked shedding of of innocent blood. That is the moral distinction. The book of Proverbs tells, tells us this about the Lord. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination. And whenever you see the word abomination in your Bible, pay attention. It's like saying God really, 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 really hates this. One of the things that the Lord thinks is an abomination, according to verse 19, is the hand that sheds innocent Blood, Not innocent as in never sinned, innocent in that basically innocent in the world, hasn't done great evil. So, number one, God hates death. Yes? Tracking? Number two, God hates unjust death more than he hates just death in general. Tracking? Number three, and yet we must make an even finer distinction. We must not only say that God is opposed to the unjust taking of human life in general, but we must also say that God makes moral distinctions even amongst unjust killings. Scenario A. A non-corrupt police officer, like a good cop, attempting to carry out justice in the city under the right authority of the state, he ends up in an altercation with a suspect where he uses excessive force and kills the suspect. It is excessive. He admits it. Everyone admits it. This is not one of those disputed cases. It's excessive force, and he kills the suspect. This is, in the mind of God, an unjust killing. That's scenario A. Scenario B. A slave runs away from the plantation, is captured by the dogs, is brought back home. The slave master castrates him, douses him with kerosene, and sets him on fire in front of the entire plantation as an example to the other slaves. We know that both of these are unjust, but there is a level of severity in scenario B that makes it utterly distinct from scenario A. Both deaths there's a tongue thing. Both deaths are unjust, but one is obviously and significantly more unjust than the other. This is a necessary ethical distinction. Now, when we assess the nature and severity of a crime, like the taking of human life, we must reflect God's character and God's mind and God's law by making these necessary moral distinctions, by trying to decide what level of severity the unjust action is. So we take into account things like the vulnerability of the victim of the crime, right? The Bible has a special category for widows and orphans. They're the most helpless people in society, and therefore we dole out more severe punishments for those who commit crimes against widows and orphans. We take into account things like premeditation, which is why our legal system has manslaughter, first degree, second degree murder, right? Your, your, your motivation and your premeditation factor into how severe we think your crime is. If you get into a fight in a parking lot and kill a man, 
Well, that's one thing. If you plan it for a year and do it in cold blood, well, that's another thing. We must take into account the extant harm caused by the crime. So did the crime only affect the victim or a family? Did it terrorize an entire community? We take into account things like the inherent value of the one harmed by the crime. So although it would be a tragedy for someone to come and kill your family's dog, it would be a much more significant tragedy for someone to come and kill your family's patriarch, you know, your grandpa. Why? Because we know that there is an inherent value in the human that is not inherent in the dog. And I hope no one comes up to argue with me about that after this sermon. Looking at you, Jenny Cantrell. We also have to take into account things, well, I could keep going. Let me stop there. Now, when we are considering abortion, we must conclude that the killing of an innocent infant in the womb is one of the most severe injustices known to mankind. Let's just run through some of these these categories we've created. The victims are uniquely valuable. They're human beings. The crime of abortion is also committed against the most vulnerable human beings, right? Remember the category of widow and orphan? Well, there is no human being more vulnerable than a as-of-yet-born infant in the womb of its mother. Additionally, abortion has a particularly... There's a tongue thing again a particularly deleterious effect on racial minorities in our country. There is a reason why Margaret Sanger, the, plan, the founder of Planned Parenthood, wanted to see these clinics put in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Some of this rhetoric that I'm hearing right now about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how much damage it's going to do to racial minorities in our country, it just blows my mind. I want more black babies to be born. Additionally, Baby girls, the world over, are particular targets of abortion. At least 100 million girls have already been wiped out through something called gender side. That is the deliberate targeting of baby girls for abortion. We can consider the harm caused by abortion. It's massive. It not only takes the human life, the baby life, the vulnerable life, the innocent life, It also turns the baby's mother into an accomplice to murder. It also implicates an entire community of medical professionals. And we can just go on and on. The motives for abortion are base and immoral. Less than 1% of abortions, and much less than 1% of abortions, are due to rape or ectopic pregnancy. The most common excuse for abortion is poverty. Mother saying, I can't bring my baby up like this. I'm going to say this again later, but I just want us to pause right now and consider the fact that we are so idolatrous of money and wealth and comfort that we think it's better to kill a baby than to let that baby grow up poor. If we were to just consider the sheer volume, right, just the numbers alone as a metric of injustice for abortion, no combination of tragedies in human history comes close to the destruction and havoc of abortion. More than 1.5 billion babies have been aborted worldwide in the past 50 years. But Sean, what about slavery and the transatlantic slave trade? Friends, the transatlantic slave trade, as horrendous as it was, wasn't even the worst form of slavery that our world has ever known. The Arab slave trade was much, much worse. Only 500,000 slaves came to these United States of America. Only, and I say only, that's a lot. I don't mean, don't uh, put this on, you know, edit this the wrong way. That's a lot. But uh, comparative numbers, right? Only 12 million slaves were transported from Africa over to the, American, to the Americas as slaves. 12 million. That's a lot. 1.5 billion babies have been aborted worldwide in the last 50 years. Do I need to do that whole thing again? 
trying to put smaller numbers into bigger numbers so you get the point? An estimated 50 million abortions are carried out every year. Only one in five, excuse me, one in five pregnancies worldwide will end in abortion. Approximately 90% of potentially Down syndrome babies, you know, just, this isn't guaranteed to have Down syndrome, just where you take a test to see if it might have Down syndrome, 90% of those babies are aborted worldwide. 42%, and this number, I, I double, triple checked it, because it just seemed like it couldn't be true. 42% of all yearly deaths in the world are from abortion. Every two seconds, basically every time your heart beats, every two seconds a baby is aborted. The practice of abortion is a scourge on humanity. It is a direct demonic assault on the image of God. You know this theology. Satan hates God, wants to kill God, can't get to God, so what does he do? He does the next best thing. He tries to kill those who bear the image of God. For 50 years, Christians have been praying against this great evil in our land, begging God to bless our work in opposing abortion, pleading with God to bless our political work, our ministry work, our community work, our educational work, our protest work. Lord, please bless the work of our hands as we oppose this terrible evil in our midst. I'm saying when I know, I'm, I've seen it in this church. I've been at the protests. I've sat in on the Bible studies. I've been in the prayer meetings. For 50 years we've been praying. And 16 days ago, on June 24th, 2022, the abomination of nationalized legal abortion in these United States of America came to an end. Amen. Amen. This is a momentous occasion. It is fully worthy of our celebration. And I want to in no way qualify it. Not right now. I understand that there is more work to do. It's just going down to the state level. I understand that this could push our country into civil war. I understand that this will make animosity towards Christians even more severe than it already is. I have friends with churches that have already been vandalized since the handing down of the Dobbs decision. I understand that evangelicals have work to do on what it means to be consistently pro-life. I understand all of that, and I still want us to stop for just a moment, even in our local church where I know so much good work has been done towards this end. I want us to just stop and with no qualifications, praise God. You know? The providential hand of God has moved through our legal system to undo 50 years of high-handed evil in our land. There is no land as wicked as you saw in the book of Judges, as the land that not only permits the murder of infants in the womb, but also celebrates this wickedness. And this wicked, demonic manifestation of evil in our midst was embedded in our legal system. It was disguised as women's rights. And for 50 years, it was allowed to persist long enough for 63 million babies to die. But God, right? The two best words, <laughs> the best combination of two words, you know? You're reading the book of Ephesians, you're dead in your sins, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, you're lost, there's no hope for you, you're as dead as you can possibly be. But God, right? It's ensconced in our legal system. Babies are dying every day. Government money is being spent. The, the culture is not on our side. Every day it seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. We feel completely hopeless. But God comes in and stops it. And so, 
we rejoice. And friends, I am, I am utterly flabbergasted at the way some professing evangelicals have responded. The tweets, the videos, the articles, even the sermons, trying to throw a wet blanket on this momentous, joyful occasion where righteousness and justice have prevailed in our land. Particularly the people who scream loudest about righteousness and justice. For 50 years, and I know I'm repeating myself, but I just can't get over it. We have been praying and spending and strategizing and preaching and protesting and organizing and training and reading and fighting to see this day. We've been crying out, how long, O Lord? And most of us in this room, raise your hand, honestly, honest, before the Lord and before everyone, raise your hand if you thought you would see this day in your lifetime, the end of Roe v. Wade. You thought you would see it? You thought you would see it. I didn't think I would see it. Almost no one in this room thought we would see it. I thought, okay, I'm going to take a lesson from my black brothers and sisters and their, their battle with slavery. They prayed and prayed and prayed, and it took a long time. And so I'm just going to buckle up. The, the Lord of the earth will do what's right. I know that, but I doubt I'll see it in this lifetime. Most of the saints fighting abortion were like the saints of Hebrews 11, just looking forward to that day of hope. They couldn't see it, but they trusted that it would manifest. But then in our lifetime, it happened. It manifested. The Lord moved in his perfect timing, and he said, it's over. The only right response is praise. We should respond to the end of Roe v. Wade in the same way that we would have responded to the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s or to the Emancipation Proclamation. We should celebrate, and so we do. Now, I need to make a qualification here. So remember I said no qualifications? On anything I just said, except for this one qualification. And this is a big one. This is not a victory for the Republican Party. The Republican Party has been in the position to end abortion in this country over and over and over and over and over again for the last 50 years. And it did not. Consider the Supreme Court. Since 1973, there has been a majority of Republican-appointed justices on the Supreme Court for 49 of the 50 years. Do you understand that? 49 of the 50 years, a majority Republican-appointed Justices on the court. Why did God do this? Why did he allow all these conservative judges to be in positions of power? Conservative presidents, conservative senators, conservative congressmen to be in a position of power and then undo nothing, change nothing, repeal nothing. I think he did it for one very specific reason. To remind us as Christians that our loyalty is not to the Republican Party. Our loyalty is not to conservatism. Though conservative, I am the foremost. But conservatism in America, it can be one thing today and another thing tomorrow. What I mean and what you mean may be very different things. We are not tied to any political party. That does not mean that all political parties are equal. But we are not tied to the party that just says that they fight abortion. And God allowed us to see this. This is not a Republican victory. This is a Yahweh victory. I think we can undoubtedly say that from a human perspective, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was directly downstream from the election of Donald Trump. That's something that uh, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, libertarians, they kind of all agree on, right? They kind of trace as much as they can the historical causality, and they say, this is definitely downstream from Donald Trump being elected, elected and pointing, appointing in one term all these justices who held a particular view of jurisprudence, right? This is downstream from Donald Trump. Donald Trump. You know what I'm saying? 
This is like the, 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 the White House dinner all over again. I say his name, everyone laughs. And we should laugh. This is Don, the host of The Apprentice and then the celebrity apprentice, the most unqualified president in American history. No military experience, no political experience, no legal training, education, or experience. A long history of ethically corrupt and dubious business practices. Character disqualifications as far as the eye can see, from sexual assault, which he brags about, to rampant divorce, to I could just keep going. I don't want to spend my time in this sermon talking about all the bad things about Donald Trump's character. Friends, who else but God could use a leader as wicked and woefully unqualified as Donald Trump to accomplish something so good? I think God used Donald Trump to show us that he is the one who is moving and shaking and taking action. Oh, if Ron DeSantis was up there, we'd say, all hail Ron DeSantis. All glory be to Ron DeSantis. He's the best. He fights for our freedom. He gets things done. And we would be glued to him as a political leader in whatever party he's preaching for. But God did it through Donald Trump. The wrong way to celebrate this victory is to celebrate it like we are soldiers in a culture war that we have won. We're not soldiers in a culture war, and we really haven't won yet. We have achieved a strategic victory. The right way to celebrate this victory is to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. The war that we have been waging against abortion is underneath all of the culture, underneath all of the politics, a spiritual war. Therefore, the right way to celebrate this victory is to celebrate the God who gave it to us. Psalm 103. This is our God. You ready? God is telling us about himself. I love when God tells us about himself. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 12, 5. For the cause of the oppressed and for the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will bring safety to him who yearns. Well, Sean, those babies, didn't, they didn't cry out. Well, yes, they did. Babies can feel abortions. They respond. Any doctor who's done an abortion will tell you babies respond to the pain. They cry out to the injustice that's being done to them, and God heard them, and he responded. Now, while we are talking about this spiritual versus carnal reality question, let's consider how this applies to abortion itself. As we move forward, it is supremely important that we understand that abortion is the physical, political, and cultural manifestation of a deeper, darker, spiritual issue. Jesus teaches us this in Matthew 15. He says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So, and then he's going he's gonna to go on to tell us what comes... like. All of our actions come from our hearts. So what kinds of actions come from our our wicked hearts? He says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Okay, we get that. Adultery. Sexual immorality. Theft. Murder. And so on. Theft, slander, murder, abortion. All outward manifestations of an inward spiritual problem. Abortion is the fruit of sin, not the root. To say it another way, abortion is the water that's flowing well downstream of a much deeper wellspring of spiritual rebellion. Remember this, friends. A culture always protects that which it loves most. So if I've lost you, if, you've, if your kids are doing cute drawings and you started paying attention to that, or maybe 
somehow you ended up on Twitter, come back to me. A culture always protects that which it loves the most. So let me tell you what our culture loves. Our culture loves casual sex. Our culture loves comfort and convenience. Our culture loves love without commitment or boundaries. Our culture loves money. Like I already said, our culture loves so money that it would rather have a baby die than grow up poor. Or we may believe that it's better for a mother of a baby to kill her baby than to have to struggle in poverty raising her baby. Now, you may be saying, well, Sean, you know, it's easy for you to stand up there and say that and sound all high and mighty. You don't know. You just don't know what it's like for these poor single mothers out there. Friend, you don't know me. I am the child of a poverty-stricken, drug-addicted, welfare-check-receiving, Section 8 housing mother. My grandmother told my mom in the throes of her drug addiction and poverty that she should abort me. How do I know that? Because my abusive mother told me that a thousand times growing up. That was one of the ways that she would try to inflict emotional harm on me. My mom was right. I should have aborted you. Life would have been so much easier. My childhood was a life of abuse and poverty and abject suffering. I'm not standing in this pulpit speaking theory to you. This is my life. I'm the poor kid that was almost aborted. I'm glad my mom did not kill me. And I got to tell you, as somebody who has grown up poor, I loathe seeing people appropriate the poverty of the people in this country as a weapon for their ideological agendas. And it happens from the left and the right. But right now it is particularly happening with abortion. The problem of abortion in this country is a heart problem. I want you to listen very carefully. Very, very carefully. And this is, it's like one verse. It's super short. So it should be easy to track with me for like five seconds. I want you to listen to James's logic in James chapter 4. It's in verse 2 if you want to go back and read it more later. James says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You desire and you do not have, so or therefore you murder. Desire, that's heart language. Why did 63 million babies die in America? Because of our wicked desires. So what are the things that we desire? We, well, we desire financial security. And we've been trained to think that having a baby gets in the way of that. We desire leisure. And we've been trained to think that a baby will interrupt the comfort of our life. We desire more education. And we believe that having a baby will get in the way of our ability to educate ourselves. We desire more unrestrained sexual activity. And as any single mother will tell you, it's hard to hook up with a baby who's down for a nap. We desire more career options. And geez, it's just really hard to have a big, strong, healthy career when you also got to be a good mama. We desire confidence that our children will be healthy and not handicapped. We desire more comfort and less hassle. We don't want to spend the next 18 years of our lives worried about somebody else other than ourselves. Desire, desire, desire. But then comes the pregnancy because we're not disciplined. That's what desire can do to us when it's reckless, when it runs amok. And then a human life comes into existence, okay? God knits a human soul to a human body and places it in the safety of a mother's womb. And then what? Then our desires are threatened. 
We imagine the ways that pregnancy will get in the way of our desires. The child is going to cost me so much money. I had so many plans and investments and future. And I was going to travel to this place and enjoy that activity. Uh, Amber wouldn't mind me sharing this with you. This is one of the stories that we always tell young people who are wrestling with whether or not to have a baby. Right? We wanted to get pregnant, but Amber was like, man, I really wanted to go to Six Flags this summer. Right? But if I'm pregnant, I won't be able to get on the roller coaster. And if you think that's embarrassing, come find me and I'll tell you some stories of stuff that I said off the chain. <laughs> then comes the pregnancy. Well, I may not be able to finish school. I may not be able to take this job. And so on and so forth. Basically, at the end of the day, this me-centered life that I want to live is about to be disrupted. I desire... And I can see that this baby will cause me not to have, and therefore, I kill. In a democracy, the laws of the land flow out of the hearts of the people in that land. So, if we Christians want abortion, abortion laws in our country to stick, we must do the long, painful, arduous, impossible work insofar as we can of shaping hearts and minds. Shaping hearts and minds. We must do the work of heart persuasion. Well, Sean, do you really think that's possible to persuade the hearts and minds of a hostile culture? Yes, I do. In, in a qualified sense. Let me just give you one example. Consider racism. We live in Alabama, okay? 150 years ago, if anyone were to say the N-word, nobody would blink. Nobody would think twice. Today, I think I can say that any person in this room would rather die than say the N-word. And not just because, ooh, political correctness. No, because we really have learned to value black lives. That is an example of heart change that has happened in a wicked and rebellious culture. That doesn't mean that racism has disappeared. It certainly has not. But there has been significant progress along those fronts or along that front. During my time in Iraq, our, our higher-ups, they always told us that it's not enough to achieve military victory. We have to now do the hard work of winning hearts and minds so that our victory will last. That is what's true of abortion in this country. We have achieved one strategic structural victory, but in order for that victory to matter in the long run, we must help people to value children. We must help our neighbors to see in the unborn the very image of God, which is difficult because the Bible tells us that sinful human beings suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's not a theologian that said that. That's just me quoting the book of Romans, chapter 1. What this means is that we can foster and adopt and open crisis pregnancy centers and care for the poor and do justice for the immigrant, and we may still find that the average citizen believes that Christians won't lift a finger to help the born children that are not aborted. We can show our fellow citizens study after study, demonstrating how people who have children live longer, healthier, happier, more fulfilled lives, and they will still suppress that truth in unrighteousness, or they certainly can. We can tell our neighbors and show them that hookup culture is mentally and physically dangerous, and we can show them all the statistics on depression, anxiety, poverty, at-risk youth, venereal disease that accompany sex outside of marriage, and they can still suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We can tell them that big, happy families with more children on average produce more wealth, not less. And they can suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We can show them the polls, and I love these polls, reporting that the highest levels of sexual satisfaction are found amongst those in loving, committed, religious marriages. We can show them the polls and the data, and they can reject that truth in unrighteousness. We can show them the demonstrable, irrefutable, scientific proof that human life begins at conception. 41, 41, 
41 of the most commonly used biology and medical textbooks say that life begins at conception. We can show them that, and they can still suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Now, let me pause here and address the tension. It may feel like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here. Have you felt that a little bit? We have to change hearts and minds. People's hearts are hardened and their minds are wicked, and they're going to suppress the truth. Right? That's the tension. How do we deal with that? Well, we, we don't. But God does. What I'm telling us to do is something impossible, and that's just the way it is. But our God is the God of the impossible. The same God who has caused us by His grace to be born again is a God who can give an abundance of what theologians call common grace to a lost and dying society. He can give it to them. He already has. He's done it several times over in this country. He can do it again with abortion. So here's just one real practical takeaway. Lord, I know. This is what you can pray. Lord, I know that ultimately this is a spiritual issue. And I know that people are going to suppress the truth about these unborn babies and their value, dignity, and worth. They're going to suppress that in unrighteousness. And I know that I can't fix that in my own power with my, you know, according to my flesh, with my own whatever. But you can. And so I pray that you would, God. I pray that you would give common grace to our land. Now I want to talk a little bit more about what this means practically for, for, for our lives. This idea that we need to change hearts and minds. Most simply, it means that wherever God has placed you, you should, in obedience to the great commandment, not the great commission, the great commandment to love God and love your neighbor, wherever God has placed you, in obedience to the great commandment, you should promote a culture of life. You must promote a culture of life. What do I mean? A cult, you must show people, show our lost and dying culture a counterculture. They don't value life. Show them that we do value life. We do it every Sunday when we gather in this church with a room full of children. It makes me sick to think about churches that gather together and shove their kids off in a room somewhere that will say, hey, I'm sorry, you're... Your, you know, your, your child being here is a distraction and what the pastor has to say is really important. Can you please? I've never said anything so important that like a crying baby has been such a disruption that we need to stop the show, you know? One of the ways that we can sh- uh, promote a culture of life is just by having a church that loves children. Yes, I understand that it is a terror after church when all the kids form roving bands. <laughs> And they just run and scream and bump into. And I'm worried about Miss Janice. You know, don't run over our sweet little old ladies. I get that. But man, I just love that our church loves having kids here. You know? This little thing that we have in the bulletin every, every Sunday. Yes, I qualify it. And yes, you can't let your kid go crazy and cry. And you should do something. Right? You can't just ruin... I mean, that matters. You can't just let your kid go crazy. But like... We have this here in the bulletin to the parents of young children because we want the church to be a place where we value children. Why? Because God values children. There's so much more we can do. Men, let's start with you. Why? Because that's what it means to be a man. All responsibility begins with us. Men must train our sons to love, value, and respect women. Do you understand that if, the men in, if every man in this country raised their son in the way of the Lord to love, value, and respect women, there would never be an abortion? You understand that? He would never take advantage of a young woman. He would never, if she was pregnant, try to force her to go get an abortion, like I see all the time when I protest at the abortion clinic. Men, we have got to do a good job of training our sons to see sex as something that is good and holy within the context of marriage. And dads, we must also train our daughters. The number one preventative measure for abortion in this country is strong fatherhood. 
particularly aimed at our daughters. Because guess what? We live in a country where even if the father of the child doesn't want the abortion, a woman could still go get an abortion. Like in the state of California, where it's going to be decided at the state level, if the man who impregnated the wife says, don't kill my baby, I want the baby, it doesn't matter. The mom can kill the baby. So dads, there's an extra emphasis on us with our daughters to raise them up in in a way that they will value human life, that they will see babies the way God sees babies. We need to raise daughters that will not be fooled and duped by some teenage boy who comes along and starts whispering sweet nothings into her ear just to get her into bed. Families must train our daughters to value God more than this world, especially when sex can gain you so much of the world in our contemporary culture. Ladies, if you've had an abortion, you have got to share your testimony with women who are struggling. You've got to share your testimony of grace, right? I once preached on abortion at a church, and the pastor pulled me aside, and he said, hey, hey, this is, all this is way too strong. There are women in our congregation who have had abortions, and like, you're going to really bother them. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm trying to be respectful, but I'm thinking, well, are they Christians? Well, then what we need to do is not ramp down the rhetoric on the sinfulness of abortion, but ramp up the rhetoric of grace. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. We, every person in this room deserves hell and death. All of us have been living in high-handed rebellion against our Savior in one way or another. We are all liars and thieves and murderers and adulterers. We all deserve the wrath of God. The only thing that can sustain any of us, considering some of the things that we've done, is the, is the fact that God is gracious. So women, if you believe that, if you believe that, that even though you sinned in that way, God allowed you to go through that so you would have a testimony. Use that testimony. Share it with women who are struggling. Talk to them and tell them about everything that you went through, the pain and the agony and the suffering and the sorrow and the guilt and the shame and the anxiety, and then tell them about God's grace. Don't let your abortion just be your story. We live in an age where women are shouting their abortion. Have you seen this on TikTok and Twitter it's the thing you do. Women go on and they, they're even recording themselves in, in the room as they're getting their procedure. And they get done and they're walking out, painting a smile on their face saying, well, I feel great. I'm going to go have a glass of wine tonight because I'm not pregnant. They're shouting their abortions. You shout louder. You shout more often. You shout with something better than with, with what they're shouting. You shout the gospel of grace. More practical things. Christian families, at the very least, must be open to the possibility of adoption and foster care. Let me tell you, it is a myth. It is a myth that there are millions of babies out there waiting to be adopted and no one stepping up. The fact is actually the opposite. There are about, depending on the day, the month, the year, between 115 and 150,000 children waiting to be adopted in our country. There are 2 million families waiting to adopt. We're not going to talk about why that is, bureaucracy. I'm going to try not to get political. But there are 2 million families. So that, that's a myth that like nobody's stepping up to adopt all these unwanted babies. It's just not true. It's, it's a lie. Having said that, I just can't see a reason in light of where God has providentially placed you in a culture of death where you don't at least prayerfully consider being a source of life. At least prayerfully consider adoption. At least prayerfully consider foster care. And if you say, you know what, Sean, we have, we've tried, we can't, then prayerfully consider how you can support those who are fostering, who are adopting. Support them financially, support them spiritually, support them in prayer. A lot of people adopt and foster children who have severe uh, behavioral issues and disabilities. They need your help. Find ways to be intentional. Think about who's even in this room who could use your support. And like, don't say, oh, I'm going to get to that later. I mean, like today, figure out a way how you can serve them and help them and love them. Even if it's just going up and saying, how can I help you or serve you or love you? 
We could just go on. We must care for the disabled. We must have churches that are hungry to serve young, vulnerable mothers. We must value the elderly. Part of promoting a culture of life is not just caring for the young, but caring for the old. We will not win the hearts and minds of our neighbors with one-off Facebook arguments. Ooh, the Facebook arguments have been heated, have they not? Over the last two weeks, I found myself... And I, I think, like, I've gotten to this place where, like, I'm really above it all, right? Like, you can't get me in a social media argument. Man, they got me. I got up in there. I won, of course. Did they know that I won? I don't think so. I don't think they do. They don't know that. But that's not going to win anything. What we win them with is showing them a better way. We win the culture to an understanding of biblical life by showing them a culture of biblical life. I agree with Ross Douthit when he writes this. In any great controversy, people are swayed to one side or another, not just by the rightness of a particular position, but by whether that position is embedded in a social vision that seems attractive, desirable, and worth siding with and siding for. Basically, be Christians with the way that you love babies and elderly people and the disabled and single mothers and at-risk youth. Be the kinds of Christians that non-Christians want to be on the same team of. I don't know if I agree with them, but man, the way these guys are acting and the way those guys are acting, I want to go with them. You see that happening with the woke wars right now, do you not? You see a bunch of very liberal people all of a sudden siding with conservatives. Why? Because I don't want to be with them. You're, they're acting crazy. I want to be with you. That's what we can do. Scott Klusendorf, writing for the Gospel Coalition, says this. Put simply, the American people, your friends, your classmates, your coworkers, and your family members will now determine if unborn humans can enjoy the same legal protections as you and I. It's no longer going to be decided by nine Supreme Court justices. It's going to be decided by your neighbors. Love your neighbors. Show your neighbors a better way. Talk about adoption. Talk about how you're helping the single mother, the at-risk youth. Make a big deal out of it, not to get glory from men, but to just show them a better way. Now, in closing... Uh, I have to tell you, I've, I've said about half of what I would like to say on this subject. I've never preached a topical sermon on abortion. I might not have ever preached a topical sermon, a one-off special sermon on abortion. It is only in light of this very historic moment that I am addressing this in a one-off sermon. And I've said about half of what I would like to say. But I cannot end this sermon without making one thing very clear. Our mission as followers of Jesus Christ is to make disciples of all nations. Our mission is to preach the gospel, disciple the converts of the gospel, gather them into churches, then raise up and send out missionaries and start the whole cycle over again. That is our mission. The church of Jesus Christ does care about the death of babies. Yes and amen but we care about the eternal death of human souls infinitely more. Our mission as a church is not to fight abortion. I just want to make that clear. Because I've been standing up here saying a lot of really, you know, like, hey, here's what you and I can do. And all that's true. But that is something that adorns our mission. It must never replace our mission. We are concerned, yes, about 63 million dead bodies, but friends, we are infinitely more concerned about billions of souls dying and going to hell, shut away from the glory of God forever. That is why we move. That is why we mobilize. That is why we raise funds. That's why we preach and teach and evangelize and disciple. Digging wells is good, but it is not the mission of the church. Fighting racism is good, but it is not the mission of the church. Caring for the poor is absolutely essential as part of the adorning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember what Paul 
heard from the apostles. He met up with some of the other apostles, and he was like, yeah, here, here's my gospel. And they were like, yeah, that's the right gospel, but don't forget the poor. He was like, oh, I wasn't going to. Don't worry about that. Right? Caring for the poor, it's absolutely essential, but it is not the mission of the church. Ending abortion is something that I'm going to invest a significant part of my life in as long as the Lord gives me breath. And yet it is not the mission of the church. It is not part of the Great Commission. But it is part of the Great Commandment. It is one very practical way that we can love our neighbor. But the most practical way we can love our neighbor is by telling them the gospel. There's a reason why in these order of services on the back, we don't have stuff in here about prison reform or police reform or fracking, or abortion, or whatever, the, whatever political thing you might think should be in here, it's not in here. The thing that's in here is the gospel message. Because believing the right thing about abortion will not keep you out of hell. Believing the right thing about abortion will not take you into the joyful presence of God for all of eternity. Believing that you are a sinner, and that you can only be saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ and His atoning work on the cross, that is what will keep you out of hell and unite you with God forever. So I think the only fitting way for us to close this sermon is to once again remember the gospel. Please stand as I recite it from the back of our handouts. The gospel is the joyous, and it is so joyous, the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere, every person in this room, to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking His law and rebelling against His rule. And the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of God's love, God sent His Son Jesus to live for His people's sake the perfect and obedient life. God requires of us and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And on the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave and he now reigns in heaven offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and trusts solely in him for salvation. Let's pray. God, help us to trust in this gospel message. If there's anyone here this morning who has not believed this, truly believed it, would the bottom fall out for them this morning? Would this reality sink deep down into their heart? And for those of us who do believe it, help us to believe it more. Help us to cling to it. Help us to focus on it above all else. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.